listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Thanks to our collaboration with the GIZ Fabric Project, our episodes this week are a conversation with Anne Patricia Sutanto, Vice President of PT Pan Brothers TPK. This is part one of that conversation. The Fabric Project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Pan Brothers is a manufacturing company based in Indonesia. And their story is pretty remarkable. When Anne started working for the company back in 1997, they had 2,000 workers. Fast forward to the present, and the Pan Brothers employs over 35,000 workers. They primarily do cut and sew, though they also have fabric mills and beyond. Even direct-to-consumer retail. But we will let Anne tell you more about that. We start this episode by getting into Anne's personal journey to Pan Brothers. How did she end up leading an apparel manufacturing company? And fun fact, in 2009, she became a controlling shareholder of Pan Brothers. She also gets into a bit more detail about Pan Brothers. What kinds of products do they make? Which production processes are they doing? How do they approach the direct-to-consumer part of their business? We close the episode with Anne's thoughts on Indonesia. What does she perceive to be its strengths relative to other garment production countries? We finish with a pretty big question. Pan Brothers has climbed the value chain, so to speak, and has been very proactive in terms of moving into more technical products that leverage Indonesia's skilled workforce. But does Anne perceive this to be the thing that's positioned Pan Brothers to pick and choose its customers? To find out, you'll just have to listen to part two of this conversation, which we've also released today. Here's a hint, though. Think matchmaking. And also shares her advice to smaller manufacturers struggling to see beyond the day-to-day cash pressure, her thoughts on open costing, and whether brands know how much of a factory price goes towards labor costs, why she values openness over sales, and her conviction that suppliers will never succeed at turning injustice into justice without optimism and positive energy. We also want to highlight that GIZ Fabric has a great online seminar series called Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry. Anne was a speaker on the ninth seminar within this series. All the seminars are free and available online, and we highly recommend checking them out. And one last quick announcement, we've teamed up with Transformers Foundation on a couple of live panel discussions for suppliers by suppliers. Our goal? to cross-pollinate between the denim supply chain and supply chains in the rest of the apparel industry. The first panel discussion is on Tuesday, the 13th of April, and is all about vertical integration. As supply chains came to a screeching halt last year, consolidation and vertical integration became the industry's latest buzzwords. But these are ambiguous terms that can mean a lot of different things. How and why do suppliers at various tiers decide which parts of the production process they're actually going to do? And how does this shape approaches to sustainability? The panel is free and open to the public. Be sure to register via the link on our homepage at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. 
or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. I have to open this conversation with a bit of a reflection. I mean, Jesse and I, as part of International Women's Day, we're thinking about how many women we've met who are in senior leadership on the garment manufacturing side. So COO, CEO, CFO, owner even, or even just factory manager. And we haven't come across a lot. And of course, you know, there's a lack of women in leadership across the fashion industry and across all industries, really, not only in manufacturing. But I just, my personal experience has been that in manufacturing in particular, there seem to be very few in senior leadership roles. Actually, Textile provides lots of opportunities to women. You will see lots of them in middle management or middle high management. But as long as if we talk about CEOs or CFOs or COOs, then you don't see lots of women. So we're really happy to have the chance to talk to you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing what you're doing now? Okay. So, yes, of course. Getting to know Anna. Okay. So, basically, um, uh, I, I was educated in the U.S. from 1990 to end of 1992. And in 1993, when I, I went back after I graduated from my chemical engineering degree with minor business in USC, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, I actually want to continue the family business in wood. It's an integrated plywood manufacturing from forestry up to plywood, right? Also export oriented as well as domestic. However, my uncle actually have problem with that. Um, you, you know, the company was founded by three brothers. The first one passed away in 1989. My dad actually got stroke in 1991. That's why the reason I actually speed up my my learning journey and then get could go back early, went back early and uh, continue the family business. And then my uncle did not want to receive me fully. That, that's the reason I went back to the United States to continue my MBA uh, journey uh, for one year in 1994. Because I thought, you know, coming from an engineering background might not be suitable for business. So I did uh, my uh, Master of Business um, in, um, in Loyola Marymount and graduated uh, as an MBA in finance. Then end of 1994, early 95, I went back. Uh, I thought, you know, this is the time for me to prove it that I have my complete degree um, uh, in MBA finance as well. Why don't we just push it out, right? 
uh, then you know uh, for one and a half year actually I did um, uh, a lot of details within my father company however I get kicked out from the family business because my uncle doesn't want women uh, in the this uh, plywood journey and he said to me you need to prove yourself that you are indeed worthy at the time actually I want to work in a consultant company or in a bank uh, using my degree I, I think I'm not that bad yeah with my grades and so on uh, so when I went for my first interview, almost that day, I remember my uncle from my mom's side, uh, the one that in uh, plywood actually from my dad's side. So my uncle from my mom's side actually called me. Uh, he's the He was the owner of Chris Group, Handyman. And he actually asked if I can join the company. This is in 1997. And I said, in 1996, sorry. And I said, no, I don't want another family business. But he said, you know, I plan to acquire a, a company, a very good a textile and uh, garment manufacturing. And why don't you join for six months, see whether or not you fit in into this world. Uh, and I would become your direct mentor. So I joined the, the other family business, uh, which is actually... Uh, more professionals in a way because I'm basically my mom was not the the owner there, so I I I become uh, his mentees um, uh, for for six months. I think at that time it's the most uh, uh, painful and excruciating moment, but actually it's the most satisfied moment of my life. I think that six months gave me a complete 360 degree of who I could be, who I would like to be, and how I can push myself if I really want it, regardless of my non-textile background, right? Or non-garment mm. background. And I think my my uncle did a very, very good uh, job in in, in pushing me to the max. And basically after that six months, he trusts me and he gave me a, a, a role in Pan Brothers when, when Chris Group actually become one of the three uh, big group who acquired Pan Brothers back then in 1997. So I became the, the finance director of Pan Brothers in 1997, April Fool, 1st of April. I still remember that <laughs> Why? Because that's the first day when I entered together with the whole team and new management and we have this the, the demonstration from the existing employee. They think that we want to sack them off. We, we just want to change the whole thing. But we told everyone, no, you know, try us. Try to work with us for the next few months. See whether or not we put our word into mouth. But basically, mm -hmm. everyone would not let would not uh, would not be left behind if all of you actually are indeed the true Pan Brothers, right? Back then, mm -hmm. I think Pan Brothers has been listed, and Pan Brothers have been listed, yeah, for since 1990. So back then, our sales are still very minimal. I think about 12 million US dollar a, a year in 1997. Now, I think in 2020, not I think, yeah, I know for sure in 2020, um, 
we have about 670 ish, 80 ish million US dollar annually. The reason why I can say that because, you know, basically in 2019, we have about 670 million US dollar. I think the book, the book in year 2020 would soon be audited and we still have slight sales, uh, more, more sales than 2019. So in 2020, you had more sales than in 2019. I mean, that's pretty wild yes. considering the state of the fashion industry. No, because we actually, uh, you have to understand about Penbrazis. Penbrazis is not just about garment manufacturing, right? We also produce home textile. We also produce uh, PPE and masks back then in 2020. So some of the declining sales are being directly converted into PPE and masks. And we are able to export as well the mass quite massively. And um, that's the reason behind uh, the sales of 2020. And mm. 2021 has been quite a good journey as well, despite, you know, our challenges in uh, raising uh, our consistency on working capital facility with the banks. But then with the, with the journey with the brands are quite, quite actually quite good yeah, for, for us. Mm. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit more about Pan Brothers? Um, your, which parts of the production process are you doing? You've told us just now a little bit about the types of products, but I'm also curious to get a bit of context about where you're operating. You know, the, 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 you've told us about the size in terms of revenue, but also I'm curious in terms of number of employees. Pan Brothers, uh, uh, the journey uh, has come from back then in 1997, 2,000 workers, employees. Uh, in 2019, we actually have about 38,000 um, something employees, right? Are you, you're doing cut and sew, right? Or do you, do you also have fabric mills? Are you vertically we do, integrated? We do, yeah. We, okay, 93% of our business are mostly in, in uh, cut and sew, in uh, making fabrics to... Uh, to, to garments, okay, right? and that's mostly are being exported. And then seven percent of our business are mostly in product development and buying sourcing from others or trades. But we also have our fabric mills, about two percent of our sales. And then um, we also have um, fabric mills means turns yarn into fabrics, dyeing fabrics ready to be uh, sent to garment industry. And then we also have uh, another part, which is our retail part, as well as other uh, subsidiaries to support the business, like uh, embroidery, uh, printing, uh, embroidery, as well as sewing thread. And then also we have um, laundry facility. So the laundry and as well as fabric mills are both um uh, we put up also on the environmental solutions uh, so that we are uh, adaptable to the sustainability part of the environment. Interesting. So uh, you're also doing retail. Are you doing retail in Indonesia or abro abroad? Yes, we do. We do three brands in Indonesia. And recently also some of our brands are being exported as well. And we start to, uh, to actually... Um, do this together with the, the Indonesia Trade Promotion Center. It's part actually um, out of the government project to, to push on more export business out of Indonesia. 
with our own brand. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something that Jesse and I have talked to several different suppliers about on the show as well as off the show over the last couple months because I think what people who are not part of the fashion industry maybe don't realize is that manufacturers are doing increasingly large or taking responsibility for for increasingly broad parts of the production not only the production process but the whole supply chain so you know there may be they're make they're doing the cut and sew but maybe they're also doing the design maybe they're taking care of the logistics for getting the products to the you know destination country and in some cases maybe they're even doing vendor managed inventory and that was sort of one of the questions that we're always that Jesse and I are always sort of curious about is okay so if you're doing all these parts of the of the supply chain or taking, doing so much, you know, taking on so much uh, or, or such a broad scope of activity and responsibility. Why not just also sell direct to the end consumer and um, take home, take home a higher margin. I mean, I know that it's sensitive because you don't, you know, you can end up eating your own business, but, but it's sort of like a, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting question that, I, that we've been exploring throughout the show yeah so no it's I, I actually to be fair with you it's making a garment and selling a garment as your own brand so you're selling a brand to, to be it's completely different thing we might talk about same thing you know clothing but we don't see it that way in the in the group in the company or even, for example, when we make our fabrics, it's completely different business process when we actually do garment, right? So even though actually, you know, it's connected, right? A fabrics to garment and then garment being the clothesline for a brand, right? But it's totally different thing. This is also same in the media business, for example. There is uh, electronic media. There's also um, newspaper kind of uh, media. There's also a magazine kind of media. There's also a bulletin kind of media. But it's totally, it's still a news. It's still an information. But it's different way of business process and different way of audience, I have to say. Like, for example, when we supply the garment to the brands, we have different audience. Right. Even though our final customers is actually ourselves, you know, you and us. Right. Mm. And um, but then when we make the brands, we really have to understand where we plan to actually have our brands to to be attached to one body. Right. So so that's the way I, I look at it. Yeah. Um, um, and if. We are not yet understand the complete um, circle of economy of the supply chain. We might, um, you know, we, we might get lost. So on that note, I always say to everyone, look, um, this is, yes, this is uh, the whole supply chain of uh, uh, apparel industry, right? But what we are good at, for example, garment might not be good for us in the brand. Likewise, you know, whatever good hmm. for the brands, might not be good for them to become the fender or cut and sewn. Uh, likewise, we might not be good to become the, the, the textile manufacturing. We might be better to become the garment than the textile part. So 
I told everyone, everyone has specialty, everyone has uh, its own place. And I think for Pan is to continue the journey to become the, the, the clothing supplier to the brands, to the retailers, to uh, marketplace, to everyone, that's the thing that we would like to, to excel and to pursue further. Regardless mm. or not, we have the brands uh, being on the retail part. We treat it separately. We treat it very independently so that um, there is enough IP that we secure for the brands, the global brands, where our retail brand, um, our only retail brand should have their own R&D and product development as well. That's a really interesting perspective. I, I want to shift gears and go back to some more general context about Pan Brothers. Where in Indonesia exactly are you producing? And I understand that you're making some of your own raw materials, textiles, but I assume that you're also sourcing um, from elsewhere. And I'm curious, where are most of your raw materials coming from? Okay, so most of our material um, actually comes separately because we have spring, summer season. We also have fall, winter season, right? Most of our fall winter seasons are more on productions, yeah, more more on performance multifunctions, um, fabrics, multifunctions, accessories, and so on. So we usually have about eighty five percent imported and fifteen percent local. The local mm. is more towards some outer, but more towards the inner and the the, the supporting of the 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 performance wear. But spring, summer, I have to say we have about 25 to 30% uh, um, being supplied domestically and the rest actually still imported. Where, mm. where from? Very easily. We, we can call it in Taiwan, in China, in Vietnam, in um, um, Thailand, uh, sometimes also Korea and also Italy to certain extent or even Germany or even Japan. Mm. And where in Indonesia are you producing? Uh, three provinces, uh, several cities. In in uh, Banten area province, we produced in Tangerang, and the textile or fabric mills is in Serang. And in West Java, we produce in um, Bandung as well as uh, Tasikmalaya. That's in garment as well as in sewing and embroidery thread. And then we have uh, the, the biggest part is in Central Java. We have uh, several compounds in uh, Boyolali area, uh, not just the garment side, but also the additional secondary process like um, printing as well as uh, embroidery. And then we have in Sragen, uh, garment and then uh, uh, a unit of laundry uh, facility for the garment laundry wash or uh, dye stuff, and then um, garment dye. And then we also have the one in Ungaran, uh, which is close to our Boyolali site. Last time we talked, you were like, you know, not all production countries are the same. Each yeah. one has their own strength, their own weakness. Specialty. And yeah. yeah, their own specialty. And so I'm curious, how does the fact that you are producing in Indonesia specifically, 
how does that affect your how do you see the fact that you produce in Indonesia affecting your positioning or your specialty within the broader context of apparel manufacturing and relative to other production countries the reason why i said that look indonesia should also focus on what we are good at because obviously uh, our minimum wage is not um, it's not cheap We actually are not a poor country. We are developing countries. We are a democracy as well as developing countries where a minimum wage has been set at a certain level where our people can still do uh, the basic stuff, right? What I'm trying to say is it's not about the minimum wage per se. When when we look at Indonesia, when, you know, during the transition period of this autonomy of Indonesia from 1998 to now, we know for a fact that Indonesia will continue growing, will continue to improve uh, the wages sectors, the, the, the welfare of the people. Therefore, we, the productivity and so on might not catch up if we only fight or if we only sell uh, common or basic items that can easily produce in other countries with less wages, right? So how to actually overcome all of this is by actually focusing on things that we can do best, which is more into the artistic value or more into the things that is so difficult that maybe cannot be produced uh, outside So that's the reason why Pambridge choose the performance wear, more intricate uh, performance wear, um, and also things that uh, you you rarely see in other countries like uh, Cortex, uh, laser cut, and um, also uh, a lot of SimSeal and so on. Because we believe that by giving more value added uh, to, to the client or to the brands, they will choose us not because we are the least least, uh, expensive, um, but we are also a a country or a factory that can produce things that they cannot find in other countries or maybe in other peers. I don't know. So, I I mean, tell me if I got it right. But basically what I hear you saying is Indonesia can't compete on price alone uh, because wages are more expensive relative to some other garment producing countries. So one of the ways you've, you've looked at adding value and differentiating yourself and remaining sort of a relevant and interesting player in this space is through product, going into more technical types of products that are harder to produce, whether that's because of the types of materials that are used or production technique or you know, whatever that might be. Yeah. So, so you know, the competitive advantage of Indonesia we need to use. And it's not about the wages. You, I have heard you say things like we, you know, are choosing the customers that we want to work with. And I'm curious, like, did these kind of things develop together? Was, was be going into more technical types of products, going into sort of more complicated production, doing something that other manufacturers could not offer, was that sort of a critical part of positioning Pan Brothers to be able to pick and choose its customers? Or is being able to pick and choose your customers something that came with size and scale? I mean, how did you get to a point where you were able to do that? 
And to find out the answer to this question, you'll just have to listen to part two of our conversation. And we really recommend tuning in for that because the answer that Anne gives might surprise you. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.